Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32. And we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced since 2018. And together we have an amazing adult daughter who is thriving and doing fantastic. And today I have another wonderful guest on the podcast. And we're going to talk about some topics that I really haven't talked about on the podcast in any depth. And I'm really looking forward to our conversations. So I'd like to welcome my guest, Dr. Tina. Dr. Tina, welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yeah, I know we're going to talk about shame and sex and some of the work that you've been doing and some of the issues that I know continually come up in the support groups that I offer for neurodiverse couples and the non-autistic partners. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about the work you do. Sure. So I'm Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. As you said, I am First and foremost, the mom of four adult kiddos and the yaya of two little girls. And um, and I am a partner to a very supportive partner, which I'm very grateful for. I'm a doctor in sexual medicine and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a certified sex therapist and a certified sex therapy supervisor. And I'm the best-selling author of two books, one called Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy which just looks at how America became sex negative, how it was really meant to be sex positive, how you heal from sexual shame, the impact on our lives, and then how to integrate sexuality and spirituality together. And then after that book came out and I started hearing from lots of people from all over the world, frankly, um, I began to get questions about, tell me, I, I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me but I don't know what to do. So can you help me raise my kids to be relationally healthy, sexually healthy, you know, just to be at home in their own bodies because I'm not, and I've had to do a lot of my own emotional work around that. So from there, I wrote the book, Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids and Heal Your Shame Too. So I've done a ton of research on the impact of sexual shame on health and wellness and attachment and our ability to do intimacy, which really means our ability to give and receive love well, and specifically also on religious sexual shame and trauma. Mm -hmm. So one of my goals has been to really help resource parents with everything they need at every single age that will help, which includes sex ed and managing sexual and relational curiosities and all that stuff, just to walk with parents along the way and help them change their legacy if that's what they're wanting to do and enjoy their children more. Um, yeah, and this work really came out of teaching in a graduate program for 30 years and teaching many courses, but one of the courses I taught was the graduate human sexuality course. And it was really through listening to my students over the years that I began to see the impact of sexual shame, people's just sense of humiliation and disgust about their bodies and about desire and sexuality, all of it. And I just started saying, what, what's been happening in our culture that's caused this dramatic increase? And, and my work really has spun out of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now I run an institute that trains therapists and doctors and physicians um, of all types 
educators, et cetera, on sexual health and understanding um, the wider cultural issues um, around sexuality and diversity. So. Wow. Dr. Tina, what you are doing is really a godsend because I know there are so many people out there who have gotten supposed sex education in school, which we know in a lot of schools amounts to like fear tactics Mm -hmm. and not teaching healthy things that you know, teenagers or young adults need to learn. I remember I took my first human sexuality course. I had sex ed in seventh grade, which wasn't much of anything. And I think I remember the principal of our middle school in the class with us. And it was a man and, you know, it was a bunch of girls. And so that didn't go over too well. Mm -hmm. And I remember when my daughter got her sex ed class, it was all kind of scared straight. Um, They actually showed a video of a woman giving birth um, and what happened afterwards to scare these kids. Yeah, it was absolutely horrible. Of course, Mona, the social worker, went in to see the principal and the (laughs) teacher who taught that and, you know, started a petition drive and all of that. But it didn't work very well because we're kind of in the deep south. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're doing is so, so vitally important for parents for adults, for physicians, for therapists, for everybody that is having an opportunity to learn more about how sex and sexuality can be addressed in a very positive way. And it's so funny because I've been on dating apps since my divorce. And one of the newest things that you can label yourself, and I don't know if you've heard this, is sex positive. And it has a little jalapeno, jalapeno pepper on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think that's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about sexual shame and how you are helping parents and adults work through that. And where the heck did all of that come from? <laughs> Woo. Yeah, great question. And um, <laughs> and. Really, what it begs us to know is a little bit about our history. Um, <clears throat> sexual shame, <coughs> excuse me, has been with us for a long time. Um, America is profoundly influenced by American Christianity, and which has been changing, you know, having its you know new flavors all the time. but but really, when you look back in history, you know, for two thousand years or so, what you see is that the socio-political slash religious climate of the day influences cultures more when there's a lot of fear or uncertainty or could be plagues, could be, you know, anything that scares the public. When that happens, the people in power, which includes religious leaders often, because they're often involved in the politics of things, um, ends up shaping the narrative of what gets pushed out to culture. So when you look at just the recent history in America, post-World War II, you know, we had, the women were were holding us together as a country when the men were off fighting. Mm -hmm. Is a broad way to say things. And of course, these are all generalizations. But The men came home. There was a huge push for industrialization in order for there to be um, things that would make, quote unquote, women be happy back at home again. 
you know, so there's the washing machine and the vacuum cleaner and all these new electronics that came forward in the 50s. Um, but of course, anytime we stick whole groups of people in a box and we say, this is, this is the way you should live and it will make you happy, we're going to have people that say, well, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't fit for me. And so in 1965, we had the um, uh, FDA approval of the pill. And yep. for women, this was their first um, really voyage into real reproductive choice in their lives. And, um, and so we began to see some real um, shifts and change with regard to women's voices in culture, influencing culture. So this was second wave feminism. Um, and, and the National Organization of Women was big during the 60s and 70s. There was just a huge change there. We also had um, uh, the Vietnam War and civil rights issues uh, uh, really peaking a lot during this time. And a lot of people were coming forward and saying, I need for life to look different. I need for my voice to be heard, et cetera, et cetera. And so we saw the kinds of changes that we did in the late 60s and 70s. We had incredible research going on at that time on sexuality, mm -hmm. um, kind of spinning out of the Masters and Johnson's kind of thing, but then really moving into like, what is sexuality for those that are disabled? What does that look like? And how do we support that? And how do we support that in the kinds of institutions that might people might find themselves living in? Um, and so really important big questions were being tackled in the, in the realm of sexuality. Um, and then everything got shut down in 1980. 1980, Carter was thrown out of office. There was a, just a real desire to push, the, the, push capitalism and push the, the politics to the right. So the moral majority and religious right joined up with the Republican Party and Actually, what began to happen was not a push in family values, although that was their branding slogan, it was really yeah. a push in capitalism. And so during the 80s, we cut the uh, regulations to the media that the FCC had previously had so that now the media could do whatever they wanted. It became about making money for the stockholders. So the ends, making money for the stockholders, justified the means, any way we wanted to get there. And so we saw a real shift in business ethics begin in the 80s, um, where it was really all about, didn't matter what you did, didn't matter if you lied, didn't matter if you made a crappy product, provided that we made money for the stockholders at the end of the quarter. And we've been in that. We've, we began to remove tax regulations in taxes and the banks. Um, and so we saw this dramatic increase in um, the wealthy over the middle class and lower class that happened over the next 20, 30 years. So when we were, when we were doing all of this, the religious right uh, and under the support of, you know, Reagan and Carter, I'm excuse me, not Carter, but um, Bush later on began to spend billions and billions of dollars on abstinence education, withdrew all funding for research on sex, sexual education, and we had had a kind of sexual education that had begun actually in the 40s in a kind of slow response to the amount of um, sexually transmitted diseases we saw in World War One. So mm -hmm. out of that grew a sex ed program started in the 40s that continued through the 60s. You can even Google it on or Google it um, YouTube, put in sex education 1940s and you're going to come mm -hmm. up with the exact video or video it was a 
movie movie <laughs> on a reel it was real yeah okay. that they showed in the 40s and then if you do the same thing and ask for the 60s you'll get the the one that got modified for the 60s um all of that got changed and we moved into this abstinence only education quote unquote program um we um have since done a lot of research on that education it's 80 percent medically inaccurate and like you shared it had a lot to do with scaring people. It, we moved into this place, what um, one sex educator calls the sex is dangerous, you know, time mm -hmm. frame, you know, mm -hmm. and that was what undergirded everything. And then also, of course, what was happening in the 80s, which continued to scare the public. So we had the response of sex and second wave feminism. We had an economic downturn, but then we had AIDS hit the East Coast in 1980 and the West Coast about 1985. And of course, this really scared the public. And so the public was really putty in the hands of these um, politicians and religious leaders that were wanting really to push capitalism and to increase their power and influence. Uh, and they did that again through scare tactics, which really involved the, the abstinence only education program. To this day, right now, in 20, yeah. the end of 2023, we only have 18 states that have medically, that have passed laws to require that whatever sex education they have be medically accurate. That wow. is right now. So we have wow. 32 states that still do whatever in the heck they want to. Um, so and, you know, and have abstinence is a big, is a big piece of that. So, yeah. So, I just want to give that background in yeah. part because I want people to see the context. So when I talk about what sexual shame is and the impact, which comes from silence and shame, like right. when you shame a child for having normal curiosities, they're going to believe that they are fundamentally broken, that they're fundamentally wrong and bad. Yeah. Um, and, and can we yeah, pause go ahead. there for yeah. one second? Because I want to get deep into this. And and I want for the listeners to know that we are going to talk about how all of this is related to neurodiverse relationships. Right. But I think it's so important for everybody to hear, especially since a lot of the folks that listen to the podcast, I mean, it's all over the map, but I have probably a third of my audience is in their twenties and thirties. So they don't sure. know this history. And I think for those folks that are neurodivergent, I think it's been even more difficult and more challenging. And we'll talk about that yes. a little bit more mm -hmm. because you may not understand certain things in the way that other people do or look at them through the same lens and right. so you're shamed repeatedly for feeling what you're feeling or wanting what you're wanting so I just wanted to Absolutely. point that out yeah before we get into the sexual shame piece so share with us a little bit more about the sexual shame piece yeah so I am. A, I've become a believer that sexual shame for many, actually most, I would say 95% of, of people grow up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and shaming is getting in trouble for doing something that's naturally who you are or naturally in your curiosity or naturally in your development. So you're mm -hmm. just doing something straight out of your gut right? Just right. natural. And somebody who you love and often who is providing life support basically for you um, 
gets very angry with you, slaps your hand away, tells you it's gross or it's yucky or God's not going to like it or something that really fundamentally scares the child. And this can begin as soon as children are finding their genitals, which can be as early as a year old and then mm -hmm. happen, you know, and then they become very enamored with that part of their body because it's a wonderful part of their body. Um, right. And they're getting in trouble over and over and over again until they maybe get in trouble for playing doctor when they're about five. And that memory they actually hold on to. And that one is the one that often causes them that time time frame of getting in trouble causes them to go underground. So they learn, oh, I can't do anything having to do with my body around these people because they freak out. Mm -hmm. um, and then they start changing their behavior to go underground with it. So research wasn't done until 2017 on what sexual shame is apart from sec from just shame. And the operational definition is really stunning. And for people that have conversations with people about how they're feeling, about their bodies, about desire, about sexuality, about lack of desire, about whatever they're desiring, you know, um, when people are describing this, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just indicating that they were probably treated in a way that was hurtful in some way. And so what we've come to know about sexual shame is, and I'll give you the operational definition that came out of research. Sexual okay. shame is a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust. So visceral means in your body, visceral feeling sure. of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and one's identity as a sexual being and a belief that you are abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. This feeling can be internalized, but it also manifests in interpersonal relationships. So that's really where it begins between the child and someone else. And then it can become internalized after that. Having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. So really all the ways primary ways that we attach are impacted by sexual shame. And it goes on to say sexual shame develops across the lifespan, like I talked about in interactions with interpersonal relationship, but then continues with one's culture and society, which in, the, which in America, we believe that if we get you to feel badly enough about yourself and your body, you're gonna keep purchasing things. So we actually drive our economy through this cultural messaging of you not being good enough, right? So one's right. culture and society and creates a subsequent critical self-appraisal. So an internal critic is going, which often torments you through the rest of your life. Sure. And then it goes on to say, there is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire. So what this is really saying is, and this this came out of the book of Peggy Ornstein, her book, um, Girls and Sex. Mm -hmm. She was interviewing 80 young women between 15 and 22. And what she found was the vast majority of them could describe themselves as feeling confident and competent in all kinds of areas of their life until they got ready to go out. And then they were putting down three, four, and five shots of hard liquor because they didn't know if they could keep themselves safe or if they had the right to, which is exactly what this definition is saying. And in her study, as in this study, the majority of people did not describe themselves as coming from a religious background. 
So if you imagine that people who have a conservative religious background layer on top of this defin this uh, incredible definition of impact, also this sense that the divine, however they understand that, is also angry and upset and disgusted by them. Wow. So that's layered on top of this. So it's a profound impact. I don't believe that culture, politics, socialization, the church, you know, the conservative church is trying to have this impact, which is like almost like sexual abuse of a child. But it is having this impact. This is what we know from research. This is what we know in, in clinics, in clinical practices across the country right now. And people are showing up with sexual dysfunction issues that are like somebody who'd been abused as a child. So, so yes, take this. And now we can talk about a person who also has neurodiversity um, and then how that further complicates their ability to just even feel free to ask for help or ask, you know, just say, help me understand this because communication and trust has been impacted. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we hear this all over social media, and there have been so many books written about this, you know, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm, that book right. is phenomenal for folks mm -hmm. that haven't read it. It's about mm -hmm. trauma, not just sexual trauma, but trauma um, across the spectrum. And when we don't know why we have challenges sexually or with physical intimacy. We don't know what they are related to because things happened when we were so young uh -huh. that made us feel shame or shameful. You know, having the help of a therapist or um, a coach who is very experienced and knowledgeable in this would be very critical. And I think that one of the things that I hear over and over again, and thank you so much, the definition is just amazing. I'm going to have to listen to it several times because there were so many things I wrote down about it. It's just, this affects our lives in ways we really can't even imagine. Because I know that, you know, when I was growing up, my mother kept telling me, I have to laugh now, she's passed away. But she used to tell me not to have sex until I was married because I could get pregnant. Now, this was like, you know, I grew up in the 1960s, 1970s, that mm -hmm. she, she scared me, you know, yeah. she really, really scared me. She didn't talk to me about birth control of mm -hmm. any sort when mm -hmm. I was younger. Right. And, you know, so a lot of that we learn from our friends or things that, you know, might show up in a book that we read at the time in the library because we didn't have the internet. So we got some misinformation from the people that we loved and cared about and looked up to. We got more misinformation from our peers and mm -hmm. maybe we got some good information from a book, but maybe nobody was willing to talk to, talk to us about it. Right. So now I think kids have a lot more or young adults or even adults have a lot more access yeah. to information, right? But mm -hmm. how much of it is accurate and how much of it is sh still shaming, mm -hmm. um, you know, is questionable. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about um, neurodiversity in relation to sex and physical intimacy. And I know that you had the opportunity to meet somebody who is, I believe you said autistic, who's been one of your teachers for, yeah. for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that experience at all or, or how that sure. happened? Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, this is just was a gift from the universe. Um, back in 2017, when my first book came out, I was at a book signing and met a young person who <clears throat> asked me about neurodiversity and sexuality. And I said, gosh, you know, I have not covered that well in my book specifically, um, but it's super important. And, and they said, well, this is, this is both my life, but also what I study. And, um, and I was so impressed with this person and with their clarity of thinking. I, on the spot, asked them if they would consider teaching a course for me on neurodiversity and sexuality for therapists, because I knew we weren't teaching on this yet. Um, even in the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists, which is kindly the, the multidisciplinary uh, organization that certifies people to add sex therapy or sex education or sex sexuality counseling to their repertoire, um, they weren't talking about it yet. And I, I just saw it as this huge hole as, as, they, uh, as we were talking. And so they agreed, they came, they started teaching for us and oh, I learned so much from them, so much. Um, and uh, so I ended up really encouraging them saying, we've got a place for you in, in the education in this country and whatever I can do to support you getting what you need to do that. And so they went on and got a master's degree and are a, a certified sex educator now um, and are offering a ton to the field. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, I just, there's so much that I just really appreciated learning from them and have learned now over the years, you know, that they used to say, when you've met one neurodiverse person, you've met one neurodiverse person. This idea that they think the same or that we all do this or that, it's just not true. Um, right. it's just that, we have we we might be different than in some ways different than sort of mainstream thinking or yeah. being in relationship or whatever our desires are whatever but um but we're very very diverse and it's super important for people to understand that and then you know what this person talks about is how their own upbringing in a conservative neurotypical home how hard that was for them and how it manifested shame for them and how that's been work that they've been doing to heal from that sexual shame. Because first, just feeling like I'm not like, I, 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 I don't necessarily um, correspond to this religious treat teaching like this, is, that isn't feeling right to me. I'm feeling different from that. I'm feeling sure. wrong because of that. I'm also feeling wrong because of the clothes I like to wear or the way I think or how I want things explained to me or all these other things that also all feels wrong. And it all got kind of mixed together. And, and they were saying it took a lot of work for them to begin to really listen to who they were authentically, how they were authentically, what they needed and what they didn't need, what had been, mm -hmm. what was helpful, but what also was not helpful. Mm -hmm. And then how to make space in their life for the things that actually did interest them, did feel right, did feel good, was pleasure for them, you know, versus other feelings. And so, um, so I think in many ways, just kind of walking alongside this person for a number of years, they've taught me a lot about 
how those things might mix together one's family of origin experience, junior high experience, trauma experiences with their neurodiversity, and then what they need, like how to clear out that suitcase of what's not helpful and how to hold on to what's beautiful and support their thriving. Mm, isn't that awesome? I mean, and that was 2017, Dr. Tina. So we're talking six years ago. Hi. And I started the podcast in 2020. And I discovered that we were in a neurodiverse relationship in 2017. So mm-hmm. it was the year that you met this person. And yes, there's so much more out there on social media and books that have been written. But gosh, do we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way you introduced so many concepts at the beginning of this conversation When I think about that birth control became available in 1965 and to women, the Mm -hmm. pill. And if I remember correctly, when it first came out, it was only available for married women. And I don't know how long it took for um, single women to be able to get a prescription. So, you know, 1965 seems like a long time ago if you're in your 20s or 30s, but I was born in 1964. So it's it's six, it's about 60 years ago. That's not a long time. And, you know, we have progressed, but we've also gone backwards and then attempted to go forward. So I think one of the things that I continue here and I really want to delve into a little bit is how when you feel different and you don't know you're neurodivergent and you have feelings or desires or experiences that you want to explore and they're different from what other people are telling you are quote unquote normal or healthy mm-hmm. that you know it makes you feel shame it makes mm-hmm. you feel othered it makes you yes. feel different in a in a way that makes you maybe not follow the path that you're drawn to. So let's talk about ways in which the neurodivergent folks who are listening can feel more comfortable exploring the things they want to explore sexually and physically. That's the individual. But then also couples who are having challenges, the neurodiverse couples, and many of them have recently found out that they're a neurodiverse couple. How do you move forward? What are some of the things that can help them so they can be their authentic selves and be sex positive and comfortable in their own bodies, in their own skin and with their partners? Yeah, that's just a wonderful question. And I think so important. You know, if we just, uh, I mean, we can start by just playing around with if 95% of people grow up in silent or silent and shaming homes. And, you know, to ask yourself, how free, safe did I feel to ask questions as they were arising in me from the time I was little moving forward to ask questions of parents or adults in my life? And if Mm -hmm. the answer is, I didn't feel very comfortable, I didn't feel very safe, I didn't, whatever, it's just telling you that there was shame likely in your home, that people weren't comfortable. It wasn't just you who wasn't comfortable, but you were picking up the energy of the adults around you too, who also weren't comfortable. And they weren't comfortable because their parents weren't comfortable, right? This has been passed down from generation to generation. Um, And so... If you're feeling uh, uncomfortable, that you're an indicator that there was shame, 
then I often say, and I talk about this in the first book, in the Sex, God, and Conservative Church book, I talk about how to heal shame. And so it's really a place to begin for everybody, neurotypical and neurodiverse people, is start to read books or go to websites that can explain things to you about what is true about sexuality. In the book, Shameless Parenting, um, it's, it's geared towards parents. But one of the things I've been hearing and I've been delighted to hear is from people who don't have children, but also who grew up in homes that were silent or silent and shaming. So they didn't know or experience what was typical. Like they had their own typical experiences, but somebody was getting mad at them all the time. And so they've True. gotten that book and they're like, oh, this is what birth to two-year-olds are like. Oh, I can, I can hear stories of me. I can remember stories of me in here. I was normal. Oh, here's what I was likely curious about. I wonder how that was treated in my home and begin to ask themselves those questions. They can go to two to four, four to six, six to eight, eight to 10, whatever, all the way up to 18 and learn about what's, what are typical kind of emotional things that might, curiosities that might emerge, what are, are typical behavioral things that might, then asking themselves, what do I remember? from that time. And sometimes I'll say to people, go find pictures of yourself that age, because that mm -hmm. might spur your memory. You know, um, mm -hmm. what do you remember? But then also here, here's what you might have begun to feel or be curious about at this age. That is very common. And if there was somebody to celebrate that and give you the education, great. But if there wasn't, here's the education. And so at the end of each of these sections, I'm like, here's the books that I would have sitting around the house for my kids if they were this age. And here's the books I would be reading myself as a parent or an older person. Um, and here are the top websites. And so I say to people, literally, let yourself walk through your development again. Mm. Spend, spend a month looking at birth to two and asking yourself some of these questions and reading yourself these books that somebody could have been reading to you may not have been. And ask yourself, what might have been different for me if somebody had given this to me then? And then oh. move on the next month to two to four and four to six. And just literally, gently, lovingly reparent yourself and teach yourself what is true and examine that against what were the stories or the myths or, um, you know, just the, misinformation that you might have gotten as you got into school and as you got a little bit older and how does that line up with what is actually factual about you as a person as a human um, and the curiosities that you might have um, and so I think that when I think about healing from sexual shame and being someone who's neurodiverse I might like, go slow love yourself through it First, start by getting yourself some education. And then next, find someone safe to tell them what it was like to grow up in your own home. So like mm -hmm. when I would listen to this colleague talk about growing up, you know, we were able to offer them as they had gotten from their therapist and from other friends, just this affirmation that you were so wonderful in all your unique ways. And all your typical ways, all about, everything about you was really lovely. And I'm sorry somebody wasn't there to celebrate that in you, you know. Um, so this is what you can get back from somebody who's empathic, who's compassionate, and who can listen well. 
And then you're going to hear you also weren't alone, that mm -hmm. the vast majority of people were feeling this too. And then I, I often talk about how it's good to think about what is your opinion about your own body and mm -hmm. its desires. And if you feel anything negative coming up, just know that you learned that from somebody that you were not born that way. You were born pretty innocent and celebratory, you know, in just the way that you saw your body. You learned to not like it if you don't like it, right? That was not sure. something you were born with. And that none of us really want to imagine ourselves on our deathbed, looking back on our lives and seeing that we didn't celebrate a, a working body during the years we had a working body. And so I'm often encouraging people, let's talk about how you can begin to celebrate your body now. It is the pen that you're getting to write the poetry of your life, and that's good. So how do we celebrate that you have it, regardless of the fact that culture continually tells all of us that we're not good enough so that hopefully we keep buying things, but mm. it's not helpful for our heart. It's not helpful no. for our soul at all. So that's kind of what I recommend for people as a way to start that process, you know, to build community for themselves around it. Um, and fortunately, now we've got more communities we can kind of point to for people who are neurodiverse, especially if they're neurodiverse and they feel like, gosh, you know, what's pleasurable to me doesn't seem common to other people that mm -hmm. I'm listening to. And I'm like, that's fine. There's actually a lot of people that experience their sexuality and pleasure in a very wide spectrum. We just don't see it represented in our culture well or in our media well. But, and then I usually steer them towards, you know, FetLife or to a kink community in their community where they, where it's very, um, there's membership, um, like classes you have to take to know what supporting each other really looks like. I mean, it's, there's those classes in the kink communities are very specific about here's what support is, here's what consent is, here's how you maintain it, yada, yada, yada. And here's how you keep from being hurtful because so much of what people learn in a patriarchal culture like ours is actually very hurtful to other people. So, yeah. And I think everything you said is, is so valuable and so important. And I think um, I want to touch on the piece that, that experiencing pleasure in the way that works for each one of us is mm -hmm. so critical. And if we've, you know, grown up, like, like you said, 95% of probably people in the United States and outside the world, it could be even greater, right? Mm -hmm. um, outside the United States, it could be even greater. That if we come from a place of shame, it's hard to believe that what we want and what feels good to us and what brings us pleasure is going to be okay to discuss with our current partner a future right. partner mm -hmm. and I know you know I have folks who are you know all over the spectrum neurologically and sexually in my life and I hear repeatedly that when they've brought up their interests or desires or the way they feel pleasure with a new partner that oftentimes they're looked at like, oh my gosh, you are nuts or I would never. And so I, I don't know if you have any suggestions for those folks that are out there that are dating either for the first time or they were in a committed relationship and now they're single again um, or they're in a committed relationship and there are things they want to explore that they feel shame for 
and they don't know how to bring them up or don't know how to approach their feelings and desires. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say the thing, the place where ideally you want to begin first, and this can be whether you are single or partnered or dating, is as far as priority goes, begin first with you. Mm-hmm. Begin first with healing, doing what you can to, to heal some of that shame. Be, and and begin to know and understand that you are precious exactly the way that you are and the world is better off when people are living into what is authentically true about them um and again this is within context of things are consensual people are adults you know these kinds of things but but inside of that it's important to understand or begin to understand that the way that you are, the unique ways that you are is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It can it be challenging when we live in a culture that pushes dominant ways of being, dominant boxes? Yes, it can be hard because we can feel othered and that's a very real thing. But that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. What that means is something's wrong with the culture, not you. Mm-hmm. The culture. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And so we've got to find our own uh, ability to see that in ourselves and then seek to find a tribe of people that can echo that for us too. Mm-hmm. I think once you've done some of these things, then the ideas of bringing in a partner become easier or having hard conversations with a current partner become easier because I'm now not questioning myself and what mm-hmm. I want. I'm just wondering how we're going to do that or if we're going to be able to do this right and so i can bring a less reactive self to the conversation so dating i'm going to look for people who are interested in things i'm interested in just like i i i i I think ideally um i would recommend for anybody you know neurodiverse neurotypical work we all have our range of differences and things we like and things we don't like let that be okay and then begin to find people who share those interests. You know, they don't like soft touch, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, or they don't like to hike at all, like never outdoor stuff or whatever (laughs) the deal is. Right. But understand that it is, it is good, not just, okay. It is good for you to partner yourself with people where you mirror the most important things back to each other and then, um, and then you have to work on your nuances of difference later, um, which every relationship will have. If you're already in a relationship and you're learning to become okay with who you are instead of makes ex- excuses or, or the exhaustion of trying to pretend to be neurotypical, because right. that's the, the culture's asking of you, when doggone it, you're just not. And it's like, leave me alone. Let me just be how I am and then find my people from there. So as people are coming to accept themselves, then this is where I think it can be really helpful to have a professional that helps you navigate these conversations. Is there a bridge that can be made to each other around the places of significant difference where in that in that bridge to each other you can dance Mm -hmm. so if if one person doesn't like a lot of touch it's just not a super touchy person neurodiverse or neurotypical doesn't matter you just don't like a lot of touch. 
but the other person is a very, very touchy person. How do we talk about how to bring those things together? If we can't bring them together in a way that is satisfactory enough to the two people, can we talk about, is there a role of opening up this relationship a bit in a way that still feels okay and respectful to each other? You know, people have to have lots more conversations and stuff, but where one person can get more of what a specific thing they need and the other one can get a specific thing that, that they need, and but their relationship remains primary in that case. Um, there's all kinds of conversations you can have, but it's really important that you're working with somebody who is trained in sexual health and, mm -hmm. um, and how to have these conversations, how to listen really well and understand the systemic um, patterns or, or histories that might be playing out between um, a, a very established couple that's trying to figure this stuff out later in their relationship. So those would be some ideas that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all fantastic. And I think they'll be really helpful to the folks listening. And I would love to just go a little bit deeper into some of the common challenges that I mm -hmm. hear from couples and individuals. And you mentioned one person not liking touch. That's a big one mm -hmm. that comes up over and over again. And I hear it often from one partner who says, I don't like to be hugged. Or if I am being hugged, it needs to be really, really, really tight. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like French kissing. I don't like kissing, period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I will only wear a condom when I have sex because I don't like the fluids. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there are a whole bunch of other things that probably are going on in conversation in people's relationships sure. that, you know, they're not talking about in a support group. Mm -hmm. But they are going to hear this and are gonna, they're going to think, oh, my gosh, um, there's a way in which I can talk to yeah. my partner about this with the help of a third party who is knowledgeable and how to start and kind of work through these conversations. So for those folks that are really struggling, they're in love, they're in a committed relationship, whether it's an open relationship where they can be with more than one person or they're in a monogamous relationship and maybe they haven't had sex, Dr. Tina, for a long time. Some mm -hmm. people tell me it's been a year or more mm -hmm. because one partner has just given up because they just don't know how to deal with all the things they don't mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Or the other person has given up because they're not feeling, you know, like they're of value or that what they need for pleasure is being taken into account. But it's all so much about misunderstandings. Right, you know? right. So do you have any thoughts for those folks who are struggling in that way? Yeah. 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 You know, what I think is underneath a lot of these struggles, I'm not, what I'm not saying is that this is the cause of it, but I think sometimes what's underneath when we're having these kinds of struggles is our own histories of lack of information a lot of shame. The, and so underneath that shame is this belief that I don't deserve to have what I want. Mm. I'm, I'm not good enough to have what I want. I'm, mm. I'm, 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 I'm really broken or I'm really, um, you know, like perverted or I'm really, I mean, they just have these, again, that kind of negative feedback loop that's been going right. on inside of them. Right. And, um, but the, their ignorance, their lack of knowledge 
and these feelings of not deserving something better um, is part of what what plays into the this all feels so hard to deal with. I'm just going to give up. I've tried in the different ways I know. It's not helping. I'm just going to give up. You know, because the the dearth of information and awareness and ex- personal acceptance of self is so great for both people, the neurodiverse person and the non-neurodiverse person. It's it's just a lot in our culture. This is not true in our northern European cultures that also have neurodiverse people, of course, um, but have had comprehensive sex education since the 1940s. So we're generations into this. And, mm-hmm. and so their capacity to have hard conversations is just so much more sophisticated than the capacity of somebody who's just been in silence and shame and misinformation for so much of their life, right? And right. so that's a lot why, why I start with, you know, just start getting yourself some information and see, start to see that you are an amazing person. So there are neurodiverse people, there are neurotypical people, there are tons of people in the United States who are not having sex, have not had sex for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes or commonly what is happening there, and, and we especially, I think, um, well, it, one of the things that's happening there is that the sex they were having was not enjoyable for one or both of them. Mm-hmm. It was routinized, was, mm-hmm. you know, made a routine, done over and over and over again, not a lot of talking or communication, and someone got bored or someone was in pain or someone just wasn't enjoying it or both. And then when, as soon as that happens and it becomes transactional, then the person who might be the high desire partner can tell that the other partner really doesn't want to be there. And so it becomes not so great for them either because mm-hmm. they may not know what to do. That may feel better than nothing, quote unquote, right. Right. but they are not getting the heart connection that they're looking for. So mm-hmm. I believe that the purpose in intimate sexual touch um, for a lot of people is to share connection with someone and to share pleasure with someone. Now, that is a broad um, banquet, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. what yeah. is pleasure to to me on any given day? And what is connection on any given day is going right. to be different. And But for people who feel like we've got to be doing penetrative intercourse for that to count as sex, even if it's terrible then they're actually on the wrong ladder leaning against the wrong wall because they're going to keep going in a direction where someone or both of them is going to feel like this isn't really working for me. And so it need you, we need to rearrange the conversation about sex and honestly, queer and kink people do a such a better job with this because they've been doing it longer. But a lot of our straight cis, folks and I'll say straight cis neurotypical folks have been having bad sex for a long, long, long time. And we know that even from the last research that Masters and Johnson's did showed because they were, they were doing observational research with queer and straight folks. And they Mm -hmm. said, 
the people having the worst sex were the straight folks because they were wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and it happened one way. And all yeah. the queer folks were talking, teasing, building in anticipation. It looked different each time. We knew this back in the early 70s with their research, and we still see it today in our offices. Um, and so the conversation about sexuality needs to really change to I'm me. Here's what I like. Here's what sounds like fun today. Here's what would be fun to do with you. Feels connecting with you. What what sounds like fun to you? What sounds like connecting to you? What sounds like pleasure to you today? And can we create a menu that we're both excited about? Ugh, now we're talking about something entirely different. Right. <laughs> I love that. A menu that we both maybe can choose from and explore. I actually um, downloaded, it was a checklist. Yeah. From, <laughs> from a Mojo uh, upgrade. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, from yeah. a podcaster that I listened mm -hmm. to. And it had a list of, I don't know, maybe let's say a hundred things, right? Sure. And it had yes, no, or maybe. Maybe right? so, right. Uh-huh. And I shared it with my partner. Um, and, you know, it was so beneficial to know, you know, what we both like, want, don't like, and what are a maybe. So if those, those of you that are listening, if you want me to um, link that in the show, well, I don't know if I want to link it in the show notes, but if you're interested, you can send me an email and I can tell you what the podcast is and tell you how to get that. But it was so helpful because we are in a, uh, you know, we're, neurodiverse and um that made things very very clear and we didn't have to always have a conversation we could have that list so we can know what each other might want to explore and what is totally off limits and what is definitely you know a green light and um I think that could be helpful to a lot of folks because maybe having the conversation might not be easy, but doing that checklist and sharing it and then going over some of those things might be easy. But if you can't do that, there's definitely therapists, sex therapists who can help you with this conversation. So this has been phenomenal because I know there are a lot of people struggling yeah. It's Can I throw something in? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can yes, I just throw something in before we move on? There is a website called Mojo Upgrade. Okay. And it has a quiz just like that. Yes, no, maybe oh. so. It's free. Um, okay. And anybody can take it and bring it to their partner or they can take it and then bring it to each other and say, okay, so here's what's on my list. So just, just to, sh to share that's right out there free for anybody. I love it. I love it. And, and, and that way we don't have to have that face. I, I don't mind the face-to-face -face conversation, but I've been with various men who do not like to have that face-to-face -face conversation. So I think that's really helpful. So I know there are probably a hundred other topics that we could talk about, but I know one of the other issues um, that is a challenge for a lot of neurodiverse couples is when one partner seems to have a desire to engage in porn and uh, the other partner is confused. Uh, I mean, just literally confused and then oftentimes feels hurt. And um, I'm wondering if there's something that you can share that might be helpful for both partners to hear in this area, because I know I've gone back and forth in conversation with a few other folks who are sex educators and sex therapists that now folks are saying it's not porn addiction. They're not using that term. 
they're looking to understand the root reason why one person is interested in porn. So do you have any information that you can share about that that might be helpful? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so I, I want to just echo what you were just saying about in many um, sex educators, sex therapists, people who have done studies in this world, um, we don't use the term language. We don't believe in the model, the certified sex addiction therapist model um, and understanding the role or why it's in their life, the purpose that it's playing is important. Um, to get underneath it. It's also important to help people develop a sexual health model that really mm -hmm. works for their life. So it's not mm -hmm. just talking about the things that feel obsessive or might feel obsessive or compulsive for that person, but it's also what would feel good. So developing a sexual health model, which often involves some of the things I've talked about already, um, mm -hmm. is really important. But I want to add something to what you're saying too. It's also equally as important to understand the why behind the partner that is hurt or betrayed. Yes. Because often what's playing into that is patriarchy has made them feel terrible about themselves and their body. They believe their partner is looking at this because they're not good enough because that's what they've absorbed from culture. But instead they're projecting and focusing on the partner as the one having the problem, as opposed to sweetie, this culture has done you no favors in how you see this. And your partner might be using porn to simply move through their arousal cycle as fast as they can because they want that hit of all of those chemicals that you get at ejaculation or at orgasm. And mm -hmm. that's what, what they're going for so that they, it's like their anti-anxiety medication. You know, it's yeah. working for them for that. But it has nothing to do with their love for their partner that is where they find intimacy. They don't find intimacy with porn. Porn does not give you intimacy. It gives you an experience that'll help you move through your arousal cycle. Um, but that deep kind of intimacy that comes from walking with somebody for a long time together and you know, appreciating the mole on their you know, left side of their neck or something, <laughs> you know, right. that stuff comes from relationship. And, and I have had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations and done supervision with probably thousands of people around these kinds of topics. And, um, and we really have to take some time to look at the impact of patriarchy on us. So when, you know, you want to understand when did somebody start looking at porn? What was the purpose then? Why do they use it now? What does it help with? What does it get in the way of? you know, just understanding it and then helping them build um, a sexual health plan. With the person that might be feeling hurt, you want to understand what's their ideas about why this person uses pornography? What were they told about pornography as they grew up, etc. you know, and you kind of want to deconstruct some of those messages. And again, provide the real accurate information, factual information. When you're providing the real actual factual information, I think it's really important for for people to talk about, or a, a therapist or someone to talk about how porn isn't porn, isn't porn, isn't porn. In other words, all porn is not the same. Right. Some porn traffic use trafficked um, people. Mm -hmm. um, some porn is um, very exploitive and violent against women. 
-hmm. the person that's being penetrated. Um, and um, I don't think that, I mean, I don't believe in exploitation and I don't believe in hurting people, you know, non-consensually um, and forcing people to be in situations like that through other kinds of exploitation, whatever. And free pornography often is more apt to fall into that category. And that's why it's free. That's how it's free. When people want to use pornography, but they want to use pornography where people are paid well, they're choosing their own scenes, there's food on set, there's prophylactics and protection on set. Um, this is a, a career choice for them for that time. That's fine. People have the right, adults have the right to make these kinds of decisions, but you're going to pay for that kind of porn. And there is all kind of ethically produced porn. You simply have to Google ethical, ethical pornography and you'll get sites, the names of sites. Um, um, yeah. And in fact, I could probably look up a, a resource for you to put on your website if you wanted to, but um, you're going to pay for that. But then you're also going to get to choose the kinds of things you see and you'll be able to know that people are um, cared for and mm -hmm. are choosing this and there's no exploitation. So if that's important to you, then I often will say to people, then this is how you go about it. Again, the other thing I would want to say is inside your relationship, whether you're straight or queer or and whether you are neurotypical or neurodiverse, please do not do things in secret. That, that is what breaks down trust more than anything. Yeah. So it's not the thing that you're doing is that, that is that you are, your partner thinks one thing because that's what you guys have talked about and you're actually doing something different. When that comes to light, it's going to hurt the relationship and hurt your partner and secrets are incredibly destructive. So I would say, be brave, say I need or want something different. Let's talk about how I can get that with you or whatever. So um, anyway, yes. so a couple yeah. of, of websites that people want to, there's one called pinklabel.tv. Okay. Um, and um, they can also go to um, lustfilms.com. That's Erica Lust, who is a filmmaker of ethical pornography. Um, and then you can go to the Center for Pleasure, Sexual Pleasure and Health. And they have a really nice database of sex positive and feminist or ethical uh, pornography. So that's the Center for Sex Pleasure, Sexual Pleasure and Health. Wonderful. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes. That's fantastic. And I just have to kind of reiterate what you just said, because of the last part of don't do things behind your partner's back yeah don't do things in secret in this area mm -hmm. because once the trust is lost it is a long long road to gain that trust back if it ever can be repaired and I think that is so devastating to couples I've had a few folks on the podcast who have been in marriages where there was betrayal and they decided to stay in the marriage and work through it and they're still together. I've had two guests that, that talked about that. 
but I've also talked to a lot of other people who could not do that. So I hope that the listeners who are doing things in secret will take that message to heart and will instead engage in, you know, whether it's sex therapy or therapy on their own um, to work through this, this issue, these issues and be able to be honest with their partners. So, right. yeah. I, and, and, and I would just say that in doing that work, in doing infidelity work, and I often love to have these conversations way before, but um, it's important to recognize that any act of loving is an act of risk. Mm. And so if you decide to get into a committed relationship, whether that is monogamous or open, if you decide to get into a committed relationship and invest your heart, understand that there is always risk involved. At the very best, life gets, one of you will bury the other. That's the very best it gets. So that's risk, the risk in loving. But also, they're going to disappoint you. They may break your trust. That was always part of it when you walked into it. So when people have also reasonable expectations about a relationship, you know, that it's two flawed humans committing to live their life together We're going to have some bumps in this road. Now, how do I want to manage bumps with this person based on our investment? That is actually, I think, the important question when you run into those times where you've really hurt or disappointed each other. And are you both willing to work to become a better version of yourself on the other side so that your relationship can be a better version of itself? You know, so but I echo what you're saying. It's hard work. It is such hard work. And, you know, I always say I, I didn't walk away from my marriage of 30 years, um, not still having love for my ex-husband. I absolutely still had love for him as we walked into the courthouse to file, you know, our divorce papers. And he had love for me. We actually sat outside the courthouse for an hour talking about, you know, the things we loved about each other and all that stuff. But, you know, when you lose trust, when your partner, you or your partner does not want to do the work anymore, um, whether you're exhausted or you just, you know, you just don't know how you could even take one step forward. It's also okay. And I I always say this, it's also okay if you decide you can't do anymore and you want to end the relationship. But I, I know that there are a lot of folks that are struggling because they don't know the right path to take in their sex and physical intimacy. And this is going to be really helpful. It's, it, there's just so many things that you shared and talked about that are going to be enlightening. And I think so positive and, and affirming for folks. And I think there needs to be more of that in the world, not just in, you know, with neurodiverse couples. Right. So before, before we end, I'd love if you would let me know if there's one last word of wisdom or thought you want to share and then share your contact information so folks know how to get in touch with you. Um, gosh. I know we could. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to just share about one book that just came out. So it didn't it didn't meet make my last update, my 2023 update 
on the Shameless Parenting book, but it's a book called Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex. Again, remember that just basic sex ed books are good for anybody at any age if you didn't get enough. But what I like about um, Debbie Herbanek's book, this book, is that she does cover neurodiversity a bit in there, which is really nice to see. She also has some really good resources in the back of the book um, for folks um, that I think are helpful just all the way around in their goal to understand and, and have more accurate information. And then I will also uh, email you a pretty extensive um, resource list that I have that has articles and stuff, and you can decide where to share that in your work that might be useful to Wonderful. you. Wonderful. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you so bet. Much. Absolutely. Um, as far as finding me, um, I have a website, which is my full name, uh, Tina Shermer Sellers, T-I-N-A-S-C-H-E-R-M-E-R-S-E-L-L-E-R-S.com. There you can download a free copy of um, a child development sheet that just kind of goes over some of the things that you might see at different ages, um, whether that's for you or for just kind of understanding the ranges of things with kiddos. Um, and also it, it, it shows or talks a little bit about the um, sexuality, body, curious, sensuality, curiosities that kids will have at different ages, birth to 18. Um, you can follow me at Dr. Dr. Tina Shameless, so D-R-T-I-N-A Shameless on Instagram. You can follow my institute at uh, on Instagram at NW Institute on Intimacy, or you can go to the website, which is N is a Nancy, W-I-O-I.com. And there you will find um, some great um, different one to four hour classes that you can take whenever you want to on sexuality and sexual health, history, stuff around sexuality that's useful to know. There's even a great lecture on there on neurodiversity and sexuality. And those are just under resources, I think where it says webinars and retreats or something like that. Okay. So that's there for you. Yeah, and then my books you can find on Amazon or you can ask for them at other booksellers. Um, and, um, all you have to do is just Google my name or sex God in the conservative church or shameless parenting, and they should pop up there for you. They're in audible as well as book form. So whatever Wonderful. you like. Wonderful. And I'll put all of that in the show notes and Dr. Tina, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast and for the amazing work that you're doing and the education you just gave me and the neurodiverse love community in, you know, a little over an hour, because the more we understand about shame and how we've been shamed and the more we come to accept our own sexual and physical intimacy needs and are able to share them in a way that is very positive and compassionate towards ourselves and our partners, the more healthy we're all going to be in this area. Mm -hmm. So I, I am hopeful, but I know we still have a lot of work to do. A lot yeah, of work to do. We so do. Thank, thank you for everything that you shared today and everything you're putting out there to the world. I really, really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you so much. I just appreciate being able to have this conversation with you. And I just applaud the work that you're doing in helping people find um, 
their beauty and their um, just their wonderful ways of being by just getting this this information out there. So 